I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision making. Today's guest is one of the most experienced and widely travelled executives in the global insurance world and someone I have been interviewing regularly for the past 15 years. During that time, he has been in the fairly unique position of having worked on either side of the fence for a broker and carriers alike, as well as for the corporation of Lloyd's. But what all his roles have had in common have been the formulation and execution of global expansion strategies. And unsurprisingly, that is what he is charged with in his latest role running the international insurance business at Sompo International. In this podcast, we talk about the state of the market and current growth opportunities around the world. Julian has been dealing with the media for many years and is a relaxed and eloquent communicator. And given his long and successful track record of growing international insurance businesses of all shapes and sizes, this is one I can highly recommend. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Well, Julian... Thanks so much for giving us the time. You must be incredibly busy with the renewals coming up and everything else. We're in a harder market, a hard market. I don't know how you want to describe it. Does this current market feel similar to previous hard or harder markets that you've known, or is it, how is it different? Well, first, Mark, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and have a chat to you today. Yes, there's been a lot of talk about hard markets. This market environment is very different in my mind from how the market was 12 months ago. It's also very different from previous cycles that we've had. I think what's slightly unusual about this particular time is that there has been a general acceptance that pricing needs to change across all segments of the market. But whether it's a hard market or a soft market, I don't spend too much time worrying about that, to be honest. I think what's important is really to think about what client needs are, and therefore what is the right price that you're prepared to provide underwriting capital at. And I think if you keep the mindset around client needs, you'll be in a far better position than worrying about whether it's a hard market, whether it's different from previous cycles or whatever. Well, one thing that does seem to be different about this hard market is that there doesn't seem to be any shortage of capital whatsoever. So is it just a rational correction in pricing as the markets realise that it needs to charge more to be sustainable? It's certainly not just about capital and where it wants to go. 
it's about what buyers are looking for and whether that is available in abundance. My feeling is always that capital is relatively easy to find, but you need to be able to convince those capital providers that you've got a credible plan, you've got a credible team, and you're actually going to deploy that use of that capital effectively. So it's never already, I think, around the amount of capital that's available. It's really about whether you can convince yourself and those capital providers that you've got the talent and the ability to use that wisely. If you go back to previous markets, the first really tough market I remember was back in 1985 and the casualty crisis that existed at that time. There was plenty of capital around, but people just weren't prepared to deploy it because they didn't see that people had the right answers to using it wisely. So as ever, it comes down to the quality of the underwriting team, the quality of the business plan, not about whether you can actually access the mountains of capital that are there. So you're alluding to perhaps an element of fear or worry that underwriters haven't necessarily found the answer yet. What do you think might be driving some of those fears? We have a lot of talk about prior year reserving, particularly having had such a deep and long soft market preceding this correction. What's happened, I think, is that people have finally woken up to the fact that they haven't been charging enough for the risks that have been taken on. And sometimes in the insurance world, it takes some time for that to manifest itself. But the smart people were not writing some of the risks at the terms and conditions that others were throughout that time. And what's happened is that that lag in the results is now catching up with people and people are scratching their heads and saying, we really did lose a lot of money and therefore withdrawing their capacity and their ability to write those risks. So what we've seen is a lot of movement in pricing, but the intelligent people realized three or four years ago that that rating correction was needed to make sure that they're actually taking on the risks at a, at a price that was a chance of making money. So it's more of a differentiating point. The foolish ones are more impaired or less able to make most of the conditions and those that have done better and kept their powder dry are now able to move on. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of debate at the moment as whether the pricing levels have got to a level that they are sustainable. I think there's still some correction that's needed. I think if you look at the macro trends of losses, there's a very strong argument to be deployed to say that both the frequency and severity of claims is increasing. There's always talk about areas like social inflation. We've witnessed the impact of COVID. We've witnessed a very tough Q3 in terms of catastrophes. We've witnessed other catastrophes happening throughout this year. And therefore, it's very easy to create an argument that the cost of risk that people are taking on is at an all-time high given the external environment. So you shouldn't be comparing prices today with the prices that were being charged three or four years ago. You should be charging prices which are commensurate with the risk environment that exists today. So where does that put you at Sumpo International? How do you feel? you want to be putting your foot on the gas or is it still lightly just edging on the brake? Well, I'm an optimist by nature. I mean, our vision is to become a top 10 global insurer. We believe that we're going to achieve that by diversifying risk and building out a global footprint. And we believe that in the right areas, that there's the opportunity to do that at a reasonable level of profit. 
our vision is very much to build out a global offering. We feel that the size of company that we are, we find that clients tend to gravitate towards the larger companies. They want the stability of the balance sheet. They want the size of the balance sheet. They want the global footprint. And therefore, what we're looking at is developing the company to be a far larger presence outside of Japan than we currently are. It sounds fairly universal to be almost a generalist that does almost everything. I think certainly we want to be a lot larger than we are at the moment. We want to be a market I'd describe as a go-to market for clients. Currently, we write just under $7 billion of premium outside of Japan. We've got operations in 12 countries outside of Japan. We think we can be larger. We think there's opportunities to serve our clients beyond the territories and taking on larger shares of risks than we currently do. And we think that if you've got the right talent and thinking to do that, you can do that successfully and profitably. What are top of your expansion priority list at the moment, given the state of the market? I think our expansion priority, I mean, it's all about understanding risk and taking on risk. And if I go back to March of this year, when this terrible COVID situation started affecting us all, we saw a lot of our competitors retreating. And our message very much at the time is that we believe we're large enough, we've got a good understanding of some of the risk exposures, that we feel the door should always be open. So At the forefront of all of our thinking is that we are risk takers. That's what we get paid to do. And that with the power and the size of the balance sheet that we have at some point behind us, we're still going to be there to pay the claims in future years. So when I look at where we will do that and how we'll do that, firstly, it's about underwriting talent and getting the right talent in place. And that all needs to be underpinned by a very good understanding of the risk exposures that you're taking on. And sometimes it's about individual talent. Sometimes it's about grafting on capabilities through M&A that we don't have. And that might either come in terms of geography or product. But we see our growth effectively coming from all, all areas. So you've got to build the talent first, though, you say. Do you want to be a leader when you decide to do something or do something that you really control and you really feel you really understand and you know you can price? I think very much my view has always been that you either need to be a leader or you need to be capable of influencing the decisions that you make about taking on risk. We don't see ourselves as follow markets. We always will be in certain segments when there's a reason to do so. But as I said earlier, we see ourselves as a go-to market. And therefore, if you're becoming a go-to market, you know you need to have the courage to set pricing and terms, hopefully at a level that's acceptable to your clients. So underwriters should be sending you resumes, Julian. <laughs> well, we're always on the hunt for talent. And um, it's we spend a lot of time scouring talent and developing talent. And it might be a bit of a cliche, but we are in a people business and therefore you need to invest in that. You mentioned about M&A. From what you just said, it sounds more as if the transformational side of the M&A, obviously, Sompo International has really been constructed by some quite large M&A, that it sounds like that M&A is going to be a little bit more bolt-on, more strategic than it has been. No, much as I'd love to share our detailed plans with you, frankly, I'm not going to. (laughs) I think the point is that we'll look at everything and we want to be bigger. We want to be more relevant. We think there's opportunity for us to expand and whether that's bolt on M&A, whether that's transformational M&A, whether that's hiring underwriting teams, you know, I'd say that everything is on the table. So the investment bankers should also be uh, making sure they send you (laughs) all the prospects. Yeah, well, the door is always open at some point. In terms of those expansion plans, I would always describe you probably as, as a great Lloyd's patriot. 
Obviously, you've taken the decision to close the Lloyd Syndicate. So what is it about Lloyd's today that doesn't really fit in with this grand vision that you've got? First of all, Mark, this was always, the decision to exit Lloyd's was always about us, and it wasn't about Lloyd's. We made that very clear when we announced this back in March. For us, if I look at building out our business and look at some of our growth ambitions and the other ambitions that we have for the business, that just simply wasn't possible to realise those ambitions in the framework of the Lloyd's market. Notwithstanding that, if I look at what Lloyd's and the team there is doing, I think they're doing absolutely the right things they should be given where the market is at the moment. But if you step back and you look at the real reasons why people join Lloyd's, it tends to be centered around three or four key themes. Firstly, it's about getting access to the financial security rating. And we at Sompo have exactly the same financial rating that Lloyd's does. So that's not a compelling reason for us. Second, it's about accessing the 170 odd global licenses that the Lloyd's market has. And again, we have access through our global footprint to most markets around the world. So that's not a compelling reason for us. Third, people go there to use and be part of the Lloyd's brand. And we see ourselves at Sompo wanting our own identity and our own brand. And therefore, we'd much rather trade as Sompo rather than behind the Lloyd's environment. And therefore, if you take those three major compelling reasons, they don't do it for us as they do do for other businesses. And if you then extend the thinking a little bit further, for us, we think it's more efficient for us to be able to trade through one underwriting platform in the UK rather than through two. And you know, there are benefits to that with your customers because, and also with the brokers, because they're just dealing with one party, one system and everything like that. And therefore, when we took that decision, it was all against the backdrop of the fact that we felt we could develop the business and build out the business quicker if we went just using one platform in the UK. But as you said earlier, I mean, I'm a great advocate of Lloyd's. I was a great advocate of the London market. I think it's got a very, very bright future. I think the steps that are being taken, whether it's the latest blueprint that's come out or other measures that are going on. I think London has a bright future. And ever since I've worked around the London market, people have been predicting its demise. And if you look at the facts, the facts just don't bear out some of the commentary that exists. And the London market is still, it's three times larger than the sum of its nearest rivals. So something's been going right in London. And I think there's a thirst to try and continually improve the London market. And that's a very, very good thing for all of us, I think. It's not really about Lloyd's, it's about you. Is it really the decision to close the businesses because with the best one in the world, it hasn't necessarily been one of Lloyd's top performers and is probably unlikely to ever make it into the light touch regime, for example? No, as I said, it was always about us and not about what Lloyd's are doing. And we've just felt that we could realise our growth ambitions by trading through one platform. And at the risk of repeating myself, the compelling reasons why people join Lloyd's are not so important for a company that's the size and global reach of Sompo. Do you feel you can still get the best out of the London market without being in Lloyd's? 
Oh, absolutely. And as I said, I think we can be more efficient by operating through one platform. It always struck me as bizarre that you put one line size down writing through Lloyds and a different line size when you're not writing through Lloyds. And you think, well, hang on, how does that make sense? And how do you explain that to a client? You know, it's ultimately, it's the same balance sheet that's protecting the risk. So yes, absolutely. And I think if I look at what's happened to our business since we announced this decision and our intent to close the syndicate for new risks at the end of this year, we haven't missed a heartbeat in terms of, of its operations and the submission flow in, into Sompo. Julian, you're also in charge of the Bermuda operation. What are your plans? Bermuda is always going to be a very important part of our global offering. We've got a very strong underwriting team there, although perhaps I shouldn't say that given how everyone's trying to hire so many Bermuda underwriters at the moment. But for certain types of risk and for certain clients, the Bermuda market is still a very, very important part of the global offering. And therefore, we'll continue to use Bermuda as a very important part of our, our offering. It writes certain risks extremely well. There's a very good pool of talent on the island. And therefore, it will continue to be an important ingredient to our offering going forward. I suppose I'd always um, associate Bermuda with the different waves of capital formation, different classes. Obviously, you mentioned the early 80, uh, mid-80s, and obviously we all know 1993, 2001, and then 2005. We seem to have a class of 2020 now. What do you think is the class of 2020's best chance of gaining traction and building sustainable franchises that we're talking about 15 years later? Well, it sort of depends where you want to play in the market. I mean, there are there have been announcements this week about businesses opening up at Lloyd's, and sometimes Lloyd's is the right environment for certain types of businesses. Other people feel they should open up in London. Other people feel Asia is a good option, and others think Bermuda is an option. All of the jurisdictions have got slightly different edges on them, depending on what class of business that you want to write. For us, because we have an ambition to be one of the top 10 global insurers, we feel it's really important to have a footprint, a meaningful footprint in, in most of the global centres around the world. And that's how our business is structured at the moment. But do you think out of that class of 2020, what is the best opportunity for them to build something that still exists, that doesn't have to disappear after a couple of years after the pricing started to go down again? To be honest, I haven't really thought about it. And it's not something I worry about too much. I'm focused on what we should be doing at some point. And it's their decision as to where they want to locate and where they see the opportunity. I spend 99% of my time thinking about something. Some would say, oh, it's just specialty, or as often people say, perhaps as what is wishful thinking. Whatever it is, as long as they're not deciding to do the classes of business that I want to do. <laughs> no, but I think competition is a really important ingredient to the success of the insurance world. And, you know, I think it's fantastic that these businesses are starting up. I think whether it's on the broking side or the underwriting side, it's a very strong endorsement of what investors think about our segment. And some will be successful and some will start small and grow to be big businesses and some will fall by the wayside. Some will be sold after a couple of years and, and there'll be the usual mixture. But I would worry a lot if people weren't investing in our industry. And that's not what is happening. Good for customers as well. It is. And you know, I'm a great believer in free markets and customers deserve and, and want choice. And there is a very broad array of choice, both on the distribution side and on the carrier side at the moment. Brings me to one of my next questions, actually, was um, we're talking about consolidation on distribution side massively. We've had that MMC JLT deal, and then we've got Willis Aon on the block. 
Does that worry you strategically in terms of you believe in free markets and free competition, but we get to the point where there's a danger that the market might not be as free as it should be? No, it doesn't worry me at all. And, you know, it's a consolidation has been something that has happened ever since I joined the insurance world in 1981. And I joined a company called Cedric, which is now part of Marsh. And Marsh is a product of Takeo's and JNH and Cedric and various other very good firms. And you need to look at it in, the, in a wider context of what the long-term trends are. And that's happened across all areas of financial services. And that's, in my mind, a very good thing. The time that you should get worried about it is when customers don't have choice. And they do have choice at the moment. They have massive choice on a global scale. Yes, there will be two big firms, but there are plenty of other options that clients have when they go to tender for a new broking or distribution partner. But again, if you look at long-term trends throughout our industry and in other areas of financial services, companies are getting bigger and bigger. Customers are getting bigger and bigger. And therefore, the resources that you need to be able to offer those companies, whether it's on risk analysis or underwriting or risk advice, whatever it might be, they expect those companies to have a huge range of depth and skills to that. And that's why if I look at the future for Sompo and our ambition to become a top 10 global carrier, I think there's a space at the table for us. There's a real need from customers for a top 10 global insurer that's the size of Sompo, and that's the kind of mission that we're on. So I'm not worried at all about mergers. The other side of that is we've seen some great startup businesses in recent years, and some of those startup breaking businesses have chosen to locate in London. Others have grown from relatively small bases to big, medium-sized businesses these days. And providing there is customer choice, I don't worry about that at all. So you're very late affair. You'd, you'd wave it all through if you were in, sitting in Brussels or top regulators around the world. Well, I would. I'm, I'm not a regulator. They, they have other ways of thinking about things. But as a practicing business person, that consolidation I, doesn't worry me. In fact, I think it's actually a good thing for the industry. Does it challenge you to work out how to engage with what will then be a big two? Do you feel that if you're able to engage with them better than others and not be scared of them, they're going to help you fulfill your ambition? It's really important that we've got a good structured dialogue with those companies. They're there to represent clients and we're there to take on those clients' risks. And if you don't have a proper engagement program with them and understand their needs, their clients' needs, well, you're not going to succeed. And again, it sounds maybe a little bit trite, but if you don't focus on customers and brokers are part of our customer chain and you don't understand their needs, you're not going to survive as a business and you don't deserve to. Julian, we couldn't have a podcast in 2020 without asking a little bit about COVID. With some of the recent interviews I've been having and discussing, it's been a view that COVID has validated that opinion that although you can digitise markets like London and Bermuda and other places, often their principal major advantage is that physical presence and that ability to do things face-to-face and that ability to create new things and be innovative. It's related somehow to being able to be face-to-face. Would you agree with that? One thing that's come out of this terrible situation is that it has given everybody the courage to basically take the leap of faith for digital transactions. We've all been dancing around that for some years. We've been forced to work in that environment. And because of the investments that have been made, London, you know, it's been through platforms like PPL, it's forced us to actually work in that environment. And it's proved to ourselves that you can still process and transact insurance risk 
digitally. But underneath all of that, there is still, in my mind, and you might call me old-fashioned, a very strong need for face-to-face interaction. And we will get back to face-to-face interaction. But if you look at what I would call the secret source of the London insurance market, most people will say it's that face-to-face interaction that's helped London establish the position it has on the world stage. So we need to get that back into the mix when we can but we absolutely must not lose ground on the fact that most of the non-value activity needs to be done through a digital world you know i remember the days of being a young broker at the age of 21 being given a slip and asking to get 400 stamps from various lloyd syndicates and that wasn't a particularly valuable use of anyone's time and if you can do that in a nanosecond and make sure that that's underpinned by contract certainty and trace and all that sort of stuff that's got to be a good advance and underneath it all and it sort of comes back to you know what we're saying earlier about the lloyd's blueprint is that there is still too much frictional cost in our business and You look at expense ratios and whether people single out Lloyd's, but it happens in every business. We shouldn't spend the amount of money that we do as an industry on doing activity that doesn't provide value to clients. And digitalization of transaction and documentation is the route to get us to where we need to be. Do you think during this lockdown, it's been great? Obviously, we've been able to transact, do everything digitally, everything's worked, and it's validated that and got people used to using it. But have we missed something? When I had John Neal, he said that he said it really had validated the proposition of the room at Lloyd's, for example. And in fact, he'd just come out of some meetings to do Blueprint 2. And he said, goodness me, he was so glad they'd been able to do that at the office to actually put the final touches to Blueprint 2, because it was almost impossible to do virtually. Would you agree that you can digitize everything all you want, but you need to be able to free up everybody to do that really added value part? So I thought it was all about the chocolate biscuits, Mark, listening to your earlier podcast um, <laughs> and the need to have chocolate biscuits. Well, the chocolate biscuits were a real bonus because I, I don't eat them. I only tend to eat them when they're in front of me in a meeting room. And, and so there were chocolate biscuits. So I was, it was happy days. We're back at Lloyd's. No, well, it's always a very good incentive to have a face-to-face meeting at Lloyd's. But uh, no, seriously, as I said earlier, face-to-face interaction and the ability to discuss something openly when you're not limited to an electronic environment and a time slot where you've got to get everything agreed is very valuable. And whether it's body language, whether it's actually the ability to look somebody in the eye and shake hands on the deal are very, very important components to the smooth running in our industry. And that's why London works. I mean, London works because there are a lot of people concentrated in a very small area. Lloyd's is a great centre for that, but you know you only need to walk down Lime Street and you only need to go into some of the coffee bars and wine bars and restaurants around there to look at all the interaction that's going on. That's how business gets done and that's what we need to get back to. But as, as I said, you can't get back to that world and throw away all the progress that's been made and knowing that we can process and transact business digitally that underpins all that face-to-face interaction. So Julian, you're going to have to be building a very nice, attractive face-to-face area for all the brokers to come and visit Sompo because you'd be quite close to Lloyd's. Well, we have that already, actually. It's just sadly it hasn't been used this year. And we've got sweet machines and cutting-edge coffee and various other things. So we're itching to get that area open again and um, get back to that face-to-face world. And hopefully we'll come to our next interview in this wonderful sounding emporium that you're, you're, you're constructing. Well, I hope so. I'm not constructing, Mark. 
constructed. It's just no one knows it exists yet because we haven't been inside for so long, yes. Absolutely. Another big thing that's been happening in the London market the last three or four years has been that cultural conduct and diversity inclusion issues have really come to the fore in insurance, particularly in London, but probably everywhere else as well. So as a business leader, how are you going to be positioning Sompo to ride that wave of change or to be ahead of that wave of change? Because it seems to be definitely coming. First and foremost, we feel we are at the forefront of it. I mean, we have our own initiatives. We have a diversity and inclusion council that exists at Lloyd's, and that's a global council that's looking at all aspects of diversity and inclusion, making sure that we understand what the issues are, making sure we're doing the right things as the organisation. But on a wider point, I'm very pleased that this has received the prominence that it has in recent years. What has surprised me personally is the extent of the issue that actually exists. Because when I say that, and if I look around the businesses that I've been involved with, I've always felt really strongly that diversity and inclusion should just be part of the natural way of living. And you should always hire the best talent and promote the best talent based on merit and nothing else. But clearly, that hasn't been happening as much as it should have been all throughout our industry. So the fact that the spotlight has been shone on this, and congratulations to many of the people who've brought this to the forefront, I see real momentum for change. And it's not just Lloyd's. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be president of the CII some years ago. The CII have been very prominent on this. Lloyd's has been very prominent, and other areas have too. So the fact that everyone is now talking about it is a really good thing. But I'm just surprised that the base from which we started, because maybe I had my head in the sand, but I didn't realise the issue was as big as it clearly is. The Corporation of Lloyd's has started to put some hard targets on gender, for example. Are you going to do similar sort of things? Or do you think maybe these might even end up being mandated? I'll never say never. Personally, I've never been a great fan of hard targets, because I think sometimes they lead to the wrong conclusions. And it's a very blunt instrument, which is sometimes needed, but it's a very blunt instrument to solve the problem. At the heart of it, in my mind, it's all about creating the right environment and the right culture where you don't have to debate this because it's so ingrained into the DNA of the company that you just promote people and develop people based on talent rather than anything else. And that's what you've got to fix rather than say, well, you're only going to get there if you come up with X percent will come from one particular segment of the world. So I'll never rule anything out at Sompo, but personally, this is a personal comment, not a Sompo comment, I'm not in favour of hard and fast targets. What you're really trying to do is just make sure you have that big hopper to get all the talent in so that you're making sure that you're not subconsciously excluding or not looking as broad and wide as you possibly can. Correct. But you also, you do need to measure things, right? I mean, I'm not saying that if you don't have targets, targets are different from measurement. So you've got to measure trends, you've got to understand you know, the composition of your company and what you're doing and where you're getting talent from. But that's very different from targets. So we spend a lot of time measuring where we are. We spend a lot of time measuring trends and understanding the issues. You kind of expect that needle to move if you do the right things. Do you think you're starting to get a little bit of progress? Now, at least the problem has been identified and there are strategies now in place to deal with it. Are you starting to see things move in the right direction? Yeah, it is. And again, I don't want to be naive. You know, I've only been in some place since February of this year. I think there are areas that, as a business, we consistently need to improve. But I think that we've got the underpinnings of 
an absolutely correct culture to bring on talent and hire talent that's right for the business. And out of that comes diversity. And we will be a stronger business if we have diverse talent pools and you manage people and give them exposure to the global issues. And that's one of the real benefits of being a global company because you can move people around, you can give people experiences, you can expose them to other cultures that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you're just operating out of one jurisdiction. Well, Julian, you've discussed a lot of your broad and varied career. During that time, you've worked with some very big personalities in the industry. You were at Sedgwick, you were at Lloyd's, Lord Levine. You've been at Lockton with the Lockton family, under Prem Watson as part of Allied World. And now you're working with another very big industry personality, John Charman. So what's your experience so far? And what do, what do you think you've learned from working with John? I learn new things every day in this industry. And John is one of those personalities that's proven himself over the years. And the opportunity to work closely for him, with him, was a major factor, to be honest, of me coming out of the retirement garden. Because he's one of those people that has consistently shown that he's got a vision, a leadership, moral compass that are so important in leading companies. So what have I learned with him over the course of the last 10, 11 months? I don't think there's anything I can particularly point to other than to reinforce the point I was trying to make earlier is that great underwriting businesses are built around strong underwriting talent and the willingness to take on risk. And if I look at what John has done consistently throughout his career, he's created the right environment for people to do just that. So it's just one of those calls that it was hard to say no when the call came. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was, you know, you and I met offline in December last year before it was announced I was joining and I was super excited about coming back into the world. And I was sort of itching to tell you and share the news, but I couldn't because it hadn't been announced internally. But I was super excited to have the opportunity to come back and work in a great company with some great people and hopefully deliver a great proposition. So no, it's been a great year and I hope it will continue for many years to come. Well, Julian, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and, and with your answers. I've really enjoyed talking to you, sparring and coaxing, coaxing things out of you, Julian. We'll have to get a date in the diary to get you back on the show and hopefully with chocolate biscuits in hand this time. Thank you so much for your time and have a great renewal and a great 2021. Well, thanks, Mark. And hopefully you didn't have to do too much coaxing. I've always tried to be as open and direct as possible in my life, but it's been great. And I honestly, I'd like to congratulate you for getting this podcast series up and running. I spend my mornings pacing around the Isle of Wight, listening to your dulcet tones at six o'clock in the morning. And it's um, certainly an interesting way to start the day, but an inspiring way to start the day. So well done for doing what you're doing. The only thing I was worried about when I started doing this was, would people consent to be on the show? Because I can't do it without having decent guests. So it's been fantastic. So thanks so much, Julian. Thanks for being one of those great guests and speak to you soon. All right. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking 
directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.